Melissa Lendhart's Sawbones trilogy is a continuous adventure. One critic advised, consider reading this series like taking on a 1,200-page epic. And it's with a difference. It's the historic Western frontier told from a woman's viewpoint. That's unusual in a genre once described to Melissa as romance for men. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And today, Melissa talks about the three-book saga that traces the life of a woman doctor in New York who is wrongfully accused of murder by powerful interests who give her no choice but to run or to face the very real threat of execution. And great news, we've got three ebooks of this first book in the series called Sawbones to give away in our Westerns Alive monthly draw. Enter the draw now and be in to win a copy. You'll find a full transcript of Melissa and I chatting and links to Melissa's books and other media on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget... For as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can get access to extra bonus content by becoming a show supporter on Patreon. Details on our Binge Reading on Patreon page, patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now, here's Melissa. Hello there, Melissa, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's it's really exciting. I feel like I'm getting out into the world again with, uh, you know, events and stuff like that and podcasts. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you uh, today. Yes, we've all had a little bit of, well, particularly in your part of the world, it's been a little bit shut down for a while, hasn't it? It has, right. But we're, you know, I'm in Texas and so we're completely open, which, you know, good and bad, I guess. But um, so, you know, it really does have this false sense of security that everything's back to normal here. But I know that it's not back to normal here even, but in the world especially. So yes. it's a, it's kind of like we're living in a little bubble, I feel like. And has it restricted your promotion work of some of your – you've got a standalone recently published, I know, for example. Yeah, I did. And so that was last August. So it did restrict uh, quite a lot. I, I had a couple of um, – podcasts that I did, but generally there was, you know, very little, and I did a a book launch, you know, a video book launch and stuff, but yeah, there just, there wasn't a whole lot of promotion with it, you know, online and stuff like that, but it was, yeah, (laughs) it was kind of sad. I usually try to go to the bookstores here in Texas and around, and um, I wasn't able to do that. So it was, you know, it, it wasn't nearly as exciting as other launches for sure. Sure. Well, we're going to be talking about your Sawbones trilogy today because this is part of a wider promotion for uh, current Westerns or Westerns Alive, we're calling it, because this is a historical Western, but it's very alive. It's a Sawbones trilogy. You've got the three books, Sawbones, Blood Oath and Badlands. And it's the story of a New York physician who starts out being called Catherine Bennett, 
who is made to go on the run when she's wrongly accused of a murder. It's been described as Outlander meets post-Civil War. And I sort of question that, Aweni, but because Outlander makes you think it might be a dual timeline, which it isn't. But of course, it has got this wonderful love story at the centre of it. And I guess that's the parallel. Did you think that was a fair description when you saw it in the reviews that came up? So that was uh, kind of how I, I pitched it a little bit because I, and, and some people get really mad. I was seeing some reviews like, this is nothing like Outlander. And, and no, there is not the time travel, right? But, you know, you kind of take the time travel out of the first book of Outlander and it's basically a stranger in a strange land. You know, it's this woman and she's thrust into this world and this culture that she knows nothing about, right? And she's got to learn to survive on her wits. And she's thrown into the middle of this war, basically. And Catherine, or Laura, as I really think of her as Laura, but it, Laura is thrown into this, the beginning of what's called the the Red River War. And so there are a lot in it, and there's the love story in the middle of it and stuff. And so... I feel like as far as just story and and general plot, there are a lot of similarities to it, but a lot of people can't see past just the, that one particular time, you know, the time travel. I I guess it depends on when you think of Outlander is the first thing you think time travel or is the first thing you think Scotland and, you know, the, all of that kind of stuff. Because when I think of Outlander, I don't really think of time travel. You know, I mean, it it affects the things that she thinks about and stuff like that and her character and what her character does and everything like that. But when I think of Outlander, I think of Scotland and France and then, you know, going to the islands in America. You know, I don't think of the time travel aspect of it because that's just me. So to me, it it works as a, you know, as a very general Thing. It's this all-encompassing historical fiction, you know, with this woman who is, you know, highly intelligent and she's thrown into this situation that's, you know, completely foreign to her and she has to figure out how to, you know, survive and how to get out of the situation she finds herself thrust into, you know. And so I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities, but, you know, some people don't agree, but if you pick it up and you're expecting time travel, you will be disappointed. <laughs> but the stranger in a strange land aspect of it certainly does resonate. And it is a wonderful story. I mean, I got completely caught up in the love story and without anything giving away any things, I, I was really hoping it was going to continue right through the whole series. And you'd have to read the books to see what happens. Yes. But it is a wonderful love story. Catherine, as you say, as she has to change her identity, she becomes Laura during for a lot of the book. She's a woman doctor and even in that period she would they faced extreme prejudice as female doctors, mm-hmm. didn't they? I looked it up actually and the, the first woman doctor in the US graduated in 1849 and this book is set in the early 1870s. So 50, uh, 20 years later, but they're still not accepted. So when she gets accused yeah. of something, she's at a very huge, a huge disadvantage in terms of having to being able to stand her ground and defend herself. It's natural that she might feel she's got no choice but to just get out of town, is it? Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I tried to put into the power dynamics just as far as, you know, the corruption of big cities and the corruption of New York. And this was a very wealthy family that was accusing her and they had judges in their, you know, family. And it's like, if she were to 
to stand trial and get convicted, she would hang, you know, yeah. I mean, they or something, they would do something to her. Of course, they didn't have a habit of hanging women back then. But, you know, she would have been sent to an asylum or something, possibly, who knows? Yep. So she really did feel like she did not have a choice, you know, that that standing and fighting, you know, against uh, some such powerful people was going to be really kind of pointless. And, and why, when you can start over in the West, which is what, you know, everyone did. I mean, after the Civil War, so many Southerners, they went West and started over. You know, they lost uh, things after, you know, they lost their houses and they lost their plantations and stuff like that. And so they went West and started over. So there was that opportunity to do that. And also she knew that she would be able to find a place, even being a woman, you know, <clears throat> uh, towns wouldn't be too picky because they didn't have doctors. They would have used her for sure. You know, they would have gotten desperate enough to use her for sure. You know, it, it was either that or have a dentist or a barber or an undertaker or something try to, you know, take care of them or set a bone or whatever. So she felt like her opportunities were more out there. So Sure. So tell us what made you decide on a Western as your genre for starters? Have you always been a fan of Westerns or is it because of the Texas aspect that you're very much more aware of that genre? So I will be honest, I have not, I did not grow up reading Westerns like Zangre or Louis L'Amour. I had a boyfriend in high school who loved Louis L'Amour. I think he read every single one of them, but I never read those. I, I wasn't interested in that, but I did watch Westerns. My dad loved to watch Westerns on TV, so I would watch Westerns. You know, John Wayne and, and Jimmy Stewart and Randolph Scott and, you know, all of those. My dad, he just absolutely loved that. And my dad's absolute favorite was Lonesome Dove, right? Mm -hmm. He loved he he loved the the miniseries. He he was not a reader, so he didn't read the book. And I mean, the biggest compliment that my dad could give you is, you know, if we were all sitting around like having a big you know event, people coming over for a barbecue or something, and. And he'd say, you want to watch a little Lonesome Dove? That was like, he wanted you to stick around for a little while and share. He wanted to share what he loved with you. So, I mean, he really liked you. Well, my dad died really suddenly in 2008. And it was, it was difficult. It was really tough. And one of the ways that something that helped me grieve was watching Westerns because I used to watch them with him. And so I spent that summer watching Westerns. Every Western that came on to TCM, or AMC, I was watching it, and I watched Lonesome Dove, and I thought, you know, I've never read this book. It's Larry McMurtry. I need to read this book, and so I read it, and I loved it, and I was like, I don't want to read another book like this, but I want to read it. I want to read something that's more female-focused, right? So this was 2008, and I was searching on Amazon, and their algorithms were not that good, and maybe they just didn't have a good selection of books or whatever, but, you know, everything that was coming up was Zane Gray and you know oh, seemed like that's what I was finding and so I said okay I'll try Zane Gray and I mean I got like two pages in and I'm like this is not for me because they were just so you know your your typical western myth you know you've got the guy who rides into town there's some sort of big problem that he gets involved in he you know gets the girl he solves the problem and he rides away you know and I was just not interested in that. And, you know, I was on a panel with a Western writer quite a few years ago. And he said, you know, Westerns are really romance novels for men. And he used that example. He's like, you know, this loner 
He got it all by himself. He comes into town. He gets involved in a problem. He sleeps with the woman. He solves the problem. And then he leaves. You know what I mean? That's like every guy's ideal, right? <laughs> they come in, sleep with the woman, solve the problem, and go. And they're done. You know? <laughs> so, it was really funny when he told me that. I love that. I wish I could remember his name. I feel so bad. But, so anyway, I, I was having a hard time finding something I wanted to read. And I just decided to write something that I wanted to read. And, you know, I did it too as kind of a way to honor my dad. I knew that he would have loved the idea of me writing a Western, you know, so a genre that he loved so much and cared so much about. So that's that's how it started. And, you know, just, just starting when I started researching, it was just a, a huge rabbit hole that I fell down into and just, I just loved it. Yeah, so that that's why I wrote Sawbones. And it was intended to be a, standalone right just a one and done and we were pitching it to publishers and this one editor loved it and they're like can it be a trilogy and I'm like absolutely but then I was like I had no idea what happened because when somebody says can this be a three book thing and I'm you say yes as a you know author you say of course and then you have to worry about well what happens next because to me the story was you know over and and, you know they kind of whatever, I can't tell the ending of it. But anyway, so the the next two books, I plotted them really quickly. And I ended up writing those two books in like 15 months altogether. So yeah, anyway, that's how that's how that started. It's very interesting, because even now, the Western subgenre is dominated by male authors, isn't it? Do you think that women write different Westerns from men? Or are the men um, catching up a bit now? So, uh, honestly, I don't read a lot of male writers in general anymore. Uh, and so I don't read a lot of male written Westerns. I think the last one I read was The Sun. I can't remember by uh, Philip something. I can't remember his name. And it was good. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's just normal. I think that men write thrillers differently than women write thrillers. I think that there's just a different sensibility. And, and I'm not, that's not to say that men can't write women really well in the Westerns they're writing or that women can't write men really well in, in what they're writing. But I think, too, just because of, of the gender, I think that there's usually a different kind of focus on it than what you would get. So, like, for instance, with mine, right, with, with Sawbones and, and Blood Oath and Badlands, You know, one thing I was not interested in was talking about guns and talking about horses and talking about, you know, all those details. Because to me, you know, a gun's a gun. And the great thing about writing it from Laura's point of view is Laura didn't care about the guns. You know, she was not, unless it was important to her story, which she was given a gun, I think, by her dad, that was important. So she knew that gun. But everything else, you know, it's a rifle, it's a gun, it's a whatever, And so that way I didn't have to describe any of that stuff because it was all from her point of view. And she's not going to stop down and discuss the aspects in the history of this gun. Right. Yeah. And so I think that when you're looking at stuff like that, you know, and and, and so I think it's probably subtle stuff. But I also think that there is just a difference in writing a heroine's journey versus a hero's journey in historical fiction, because you have to have those restrictions that the women had then and and you have to work within that for her to have her journey and you know men don't have as many restrictions because 
men could do anything. So, you know, I think it is really different. And I think it's just, um, it, it's going to be different inherently, whether you're writing from a man's point of view or a woman's point of view. Sure. Now, you've mentioned that a lot of Southerners did migrate west after the Civil War. And one of the key points that happens in Sawbones right at the beginning, the thing that kind of topples Laura's Western experience into a whole new realm is that she is caught up in what was called the Salt Creek Massacre, quite a famous um, fight that took place. General Sherman, the, the chap who'd actually led the Union during the war, was on hand because he had taken over site of the of the so-called Indian Wars at that time. And so this became a pivotal point in Western history. Tell us about the significance of the Salt Creek Massacre and the impact that it had on the West. Yeah, the Salt Creek Massacre or the Warren Wagon Train Massacre, as it was another name it was called, it was really pivotal in the American government's behavior towards how they handled the Native Americans. What happened was is Texas was telling the government and saying, hey, we need more army, more uh, soldiers, we need more money on these Western forts because, you know, the Native Americans are are raiding and, you know, they're killing settlers and, and we need to take care of this. And the government was didn't didn't believe them. They just thought that Texas wanted more money. This was during Reconstruction, and the the Yankees did not trust the Southerners, the old Confederates and stuff, Confederacy. And so Sherman decided he was in charge of the army. He decided to go and tour the forts. So he started in the south, south of Texas, and toured the forts on the line of the frontier. And one night he's towards the the end of his tour. He's near. Uh, Fort Richardson, and he camps, his retinue camps with the war and wagon train. The next morning, Sherman gets up and they leave and they make it to Fort Richardson fine. And then the war and wagon train goes and they get attacked by the Kiowa. And so one guy survives, he makes it to Fort Richardson and he tells them what happens. It just infuriated Sherman because he went through this ambush and they ignored him and and did the second one and the reason they did is because they were doing this ambush because a a medicine man spiritual man had seen a kiowa spiritual man had seen a vision of this massacre and when sherman's retinue went through the man said this isn't it this isn't the right one we need to wait and so when warren writing train came through that's the one that they attacked and it really changed Sherman. He, I guess maybe he realized how close to, <laughs> to death he was or something, or, you know, he was insulted that he didn't get a chance to, to fight. I don't know, but he, his whole attitude towards the frontier and dealing with the Native American problem changed. They had been using the Quakers to help manage the Indian and liaise with the Native Americans and stuff. And, you know, the Quakers are peaceful. And so it was a very peaceful process, a peaceful interaction and diplomacy and how they treated the Indians. Sherman was like, we're done with that. It's war. We need to, you know, eradicate them or we need to, you know, kill them all or we need to get them on the on the reservation. And so that's why that particular, that's why that is so pivotal is because of, you know, Sherman's involvement in it. And what ended up happening is, is he put Ranald McKenzie in charge of pushing the Comanche onto a reservation. The Comanches were the last holdouts and they got their power, the Comanche did, from 
riding their, their horses. They were the most skilled horsemen in the South Plains. That's why they were the most powerful on there. And so, you know, there years of the army chasing the Comanche and never being able to catch them because this was the Comanches had been on this land for hundreds of years and knew it like the back of their hand. And so anyway, the finally what happened is the army found them in Paladour Canyon. That was their, their hideout, was in Paladour Canyon. They found them there, and what they did was is they drove off all their horses, and they killed all of their horses. And that is what forced the Comanche to finally go onto the reservation in Oklahoma or Indian Territory at that time. That's how it ended. I mean, it's a terrible thing that what we did to do that, but Randall McKenzie preferred killing their horses instead of killing the people, which I guess is you know, (laughs) better. Still, it's horrible. It should have never happened. I mean, the way we treated the Native Americans, obviously, but that's how it ended. So that was, Mm, mm. so that's, that's how that happened. And in the books, you don't dodge the brutality of the period of, of both sides, the Indians towards the settlers and the soldiers towards the military, towards the Indians. Right. But you also have quite an interesting it's very much objective, I think, what seems to me, fair-sided view that you also appreciate that the Indi- the Native people were pretty much betrayed by the government at every turn. They were made promises that, that weren't ever kept. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think, I don't think the United States held to any treaty they signed with the Native Americans. I mean, I, it's horrible. It's awful. It's, I mean, if slavery is our original sin and the but the way we treated the native americans is you know right there i mean they're just they're right there 1a and 1b you can't hardly separate it but yeah i mean the indians i'm sorry the native americans were were treated awfully and that's one of the things that's been so skewed in our history is it's talked about how the natives were savages and everything like that and the white settlers did just as many horrible things to the native americans and that's never been you know, it's never been taught in schools. It, it possibly is being taught maybe now, although maybe not, who knows. But so that was one thing. I was very, very nervous about writing Blood Oath, which is which really is the book that deals mostly with this. And I was nervous when Sawbones was going to come out because I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want people to read this and think that I am anti-Native Americans, you know, because I had to put those, those ideas and those thoughts into these characters' heads because that's what people thought then. So I was really determined in the second book to 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 show the other side, to really show the Native American side and what what we did to them and how it affected them and their lives and their culture as much as I possibly could. And you know, I used some great books from the University of Oklahoma about the Comanche. Let's see, I have them on here. Yeah. Oh, the I'm sorry, the Cheyenne Indians. It was about the Cheyenne Indians. They, the author, interviewed a lot of Cheyenne Indians who lived through it at the turn of the 20th century. So these were contemporary people who who lived through it. So I felt that it was uh, that's a very favorable historical record of the Cheyenne Indians. So I felt like using that would help me <clears throat> be able to really show what they went through. Yes. Yeah. So with all you did some tremendous research both on that side of things and on the medical history because Catherine's a doctor and she has lots of doctoring to do along the way. From all of your research, what was perhaps the thing that you that surprised you the most? So I used mostly 
for my research for that, I used this book called Gangrene and Glory. And it was about... (laughs) was about medicine in the Civil War. And the thing that struck me the most, this is the little tidbit, and I I put it in the book because I thought it was so interesting. But the South, you know, they didn't have money. They didn't have medical supplies. They were desperate. And so what they did was they would use horsehair and they would boil horsehair to soften it up and they would use that as sutures. You know, and so what they found when they did that is that the the horse hair that had been boiled and the things that had been sutured with that, they were less likely to have infection because of the boiling and the sterilization and stuff. So it's kind of like, you know, needs must. And then you kind of have this little, you know, medical breakthrough. It's like, well, Hey, maybe there's, <laughs> there's something there. So yeah, I thought that was one of the interesting things. Yeah. That, that was fascinating. And Catherine slash Laura is also very much up with, keeping um, wounds sterile, isn't she? She's a bit of a pioneer. She's more open to new ideas, perhaps we'll put it that way, than mm-hmm. some of her the other male doctors at the time. Yeah, she is. And, and in the book, I think I mentioned, you know, she kind of feels like she has to do that. That's one thing that separates her from other doctors is that, you know, being on the cutting edge and stuff and, and uh you know, having fewer people die is is going to be good for her <laughs> for her business, right? That's right. And so, and you know, she just believes in the the science of the sterilization and Lister's theories and yes. stuff. And yeah. So uh, it's it was important to her. Great. Look, moving away, talking about the specific books to your wider career. Tell us something about your background and your life before you got into being a full-time writer and how has that perhaps brought it forward, helped you with your writing? Well, I was a stay-at-home mom. Before I was a stay-at-home mom, I was in human resources. I was a recruiter. I was a restaurant manager. But then I became a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, I, I don't really... I was bored, I guess, and just uh, I I just kind of got an idea for a fan fiction story, and I started writing it and posting it and getting good feedback, and I kept writing and posting and getting good feedback, and I haven't looked back at any of those stories in a long time. I'm sure they're terrible, but, you know, I, I sent my fan fiction to my cousin, who was a writer, and ask his opinion. And he said, you're really talented. You need to stop writing fan fiction and start writing your original stuff. And I'm like, okay, that was probably around 2007. And so I started writing original stuff. And I, you know, I don't really have a background. I don't have a background in writing. I've always been an avid reader. And I, I don't find that, you know, I've gone to classes and I've read the books about writing and stuff like that. But I don't find that those help me a lot. I find if I if I think too much about what I'm doing, if I think too much about, oh, I have to hit this plot point and this plot point and what's this character arc and what's this and then if I think too much about all that, it kind of stops me up. It stops me down and I'm just like, oh my God, I don't know what's going on. So a lot of it just kind of comes naturally, <laughs> you know, and I think that's just for, from, you know, reading hundreds and hundreds of books over my life and watching TV shows too. I mean, you can understand about star- arcs and characters, character arcs and story arcs and stuff like that. But so, yeah, I, it's, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that I'm have seven books published and I'm going to have an eighth one coming out next year. But 
I must be doing something right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's something in my background that... <laughs> And you haven't, you've not modestly mentioned that some of them have been award winners as well. So you've definitely got the recognition from your peers as well. Yeah, Stillwater did win an award for Whidbey Writers alumni, which was really exciting. That happened early on. So that was exciting. And then Heresy got a favorable review in the New York Times. And that was awesome. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah I've, I've uh, been very lucky. One of the perennial questions I like to ask is, is there one particular thing that you think might has enabled you to keep going, to keep sort of targeting and to work, keep working on it? You know, I think what kind of, what keeps me going is definitely the readers and people telling me that, you know, people emailing me and saying, I love this book and this is why, or reading people on Instagram who will, you know, post about it. And, you know, they just, when a book really resonates with a reader, when they, when I make them feel something and, you know, I make them feel good or I I help them see things from another point of view, another perspective, or, you know, think of history in a different way than what we were necessarily taught. I mean, to me, that's like the most exciting thing possible. And, you know, I want, I want to keep giving people happiness and joy and, and keep making people feel, you know, that's, that's really why I do it. I just, I love that part of it. And my friend of mine was started reading Heresy a couple of weeks ago and she texts me and the first thing she says is like, I'm so sorry it's taken me this long to start reading it. But I just started reading it and oh my gosh, I love it. You were so good. And then she starts fawning over me and stuff. And it's like, it's humbling. It's so gratifying. You know, it makes me feel so good. It's so motivating too, you know, that that people really enjoy my writing. And so that's that's what I'm that's what I'm doing it for, really, is for the readers. Yes. Heresy is another, it's a full-length standalone novel that's uh, yes. also regarded as a Western, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just so that mm-hmm. people um, don't understand. Look, turning to Melissa as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, we like to give people some thoughts about other books they might also like to pick up and find it hard to put down. Do you, you mentioned you are a very keen reader. What do you like to binge read? Are you a binge reader as well as a passionate reader? I, yes, I can be a binge reader. So um, right now I'm binge listening to Jane Austen. Ah. So Audible has like all of Jane Austen's novels in one big package. And so I've been binging those. And so I've, I've listened to Northanger Abbey, Pride and Prejudice, Persu- uh, Sense and Sensibility, and now I'm on Mansfield Park. And so I'm binging that on Audible. And in the last couple of years I've been reading, because my latest, The Secret of You and Me, is lesbian women's fiction. So I've been reading a lot of lesbian fiction, and I've been binge reading Claire Lydon. She's a British writer. that I love her stuff. And Georgia Beers, she's an American writer. Let me see. I also I'm look at my bookshelf here. I really love Deanna Rayborn's books. Oh, yes. For, uh, yep. Yeah, yep. The Careless Undertaking. The, those are, I mean, I love the Ju- Lady Julia books, too. I've been read those for sure. But anything by her, right? Let me see. Who else? I'm trying to think. Well, when I first got my very first Kindle, 
which was probably, I mean, 2007 or 2008. It was a while ago when the first Kindles came out, right? Well, I got it and I downloaded, I discovered that you could just keep downloading stuff. And I downloaded a Georgette Heyer novel. (laughs) And girl, let me tell you, I probably spent like $50 in three weeks on, you know, 12 Georgette Heyer novels because they were all pretty cheap. It's like, oh, that's just $3.99. Bye. And I would finish it in like a day and then I would buy the next one. And probably the last thing that I like binge read as a series was the Bridgerton series. Yes. Yeah. So that was... Yeah. And have you, so, have you watched that on Netflix as well or wherever? Oh, girl, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. I've watched Outlander. I've watched that. I'm all for these romantic historicals being made into television series because I keep hoping and praying and crossing fingers, you know, that'll happen with one of mine. So Yeah, I, could, yeah, I love them. I love them. <laughs> I can see Sawbones definitely as one of those series, although actually mounting it might be quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it might. But that's okay. It can be done. I mean, they, they, they're doing Outlander and they're doing Bridgerton. They can do Sawbones. <laughs> <laughs> we are starting to run out of our time together. So circling around, looking back down the t- tunnel of time, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you would change? Well, I would definitely finish my mystery. I would, I would write the third third book in my mystery series which so I've written two and the third has been languishing in my head for five years and you know I'm not being paid to write that I'm being paid to write other things and so it's not getting done so I definitely would have just finished that right after I wrote the the last one what's Um, the name of those just so that people can pick them up so the name of this the first mystery is Stillwater and the second mystery is The Fisher King So I would have definitely written that and gotten that done because I still get people, you know, readers will find Stillwater and their Fisher King and they're like, when's the next one? And I'm like, "Eh, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure. So I think that, what else would I do different? Hmm. You know, I, um, I don't like to, and I haven't liked to just write in one genre just because I want to, you know, I want to keep my writing fresh, right? I don't want to get in the rut of writing the same book over and over and over. And when you get slotted into you being a mystery writer or a women's fiction writer or a historical writer, you kind of get slotted into that a little bit. Mm. And so I never wanted that. So I'm writing in three genres right now. And You know, as far as monetary success, this probably wasn't the smartest thing to do because, you know, I could be eight books into mysteries right now and, you know, building up that mystery, you know, thing or whatever, and I might be making a little bit more money. But I feel like, so while that's a a consideration, I, I don't know if I would would do that still even now. I mean, possibly because I just, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like writing in each of these genres makes me a better writer in every genre. So for instance, mystery is, you've got to be a good plotter to write a mystery, right? Yes. Historicals, you've got to be good at world building. Mm. 
in research, research and world building. And then with women's fiction or, or romance novels, you've got to be good with emotion and with characters and motivations and things like that. And so you can use all of those things. I mean, you still have to know how to plot all these other things, right? And you still have to world build in a mystery and in a women's fiction. And all books... All books, I'm sorry, are better if there is a romantic subplot. I don't care what you're writing. If you're writing literary fiction, if you're writing sci-fi, I mean, everything is better with romance in it. It doesn't have to be the main thing, but I, that's a soapbox I can get on, you know, later <laughs> on. But you know, <laughs> some other time if you want me to. But so I think that it makes me a better, a, a more well-rounded writer and I think readers like to read and they like to read good books and you know if if you write a good book no matter what the genre is and a reader likes your stuff they're going to give something else a try you know if they like your stuff like if somebody likes my historical fiction they see a wrote a mystery I think they're going to be apt to maybe give it a try. Yes. You know, yeah. so that's the theory anyway. Sawbones is a mystery as well because at the end we do discover that the plot that started the whole thing, mm-hmm. that launched the whole thing. We do get to discover what was really going on in New York and why she was um, wrongfully accused. So that's a very satisfying yeah. way that it ties up at the end. Yeah. And, you know, some people were really not ups- not happy about that either, that the mystery wasn't tied up at the end of the first book. And I'm like, this book is not about that mystery. This That mystery was just to get her out of New York City. <laughs> that, you know, this was not about that. But I did, as I was writing, I realized, you know, that would be a good full circle for her as a character, which was what it was more about than solving that mystery. It was about her starting here as this person and coming back as a a new person, as a different person. Yes. And uh, one of my reviewers, um, he said that really these books, it's like, you know, a 1200 page epic. You could put all of these books together into one book and it would completely read like it's all one big novel. And uh, I, I think that's, that's kind of true. I didn't really intend that to happen, but that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that was true too. So what are you working on now? What's, what are your next 12 months look like? <sighs> well, I am working on an audible original, uh, a romance. It's a lesbian romance and it's a short novel, so it's only twenty five thousand words, and it'll be it'll come out just on um, an audiobook. So that's kind of exciting. I'm working on edits on that today, and right now, as a matter of fact, I'm also working on a synopsis for a historical novel set in Berlin in eighteen or eighteen in nineteen thirty two, nineteen thirty three, right before Hitler comes into power. And so those are the two things I've got going on. I'm waiting on edits for my second women's fiction novel that's supposed to come out next year. And I have an idea for a novel that would be kind of a, well, I shouldn't probably say what the idea is because who knows if I'll even get to write it. Who knows if I'll write that or if I'll work on the next, the third Stillwater. I'm not really sure, but, uh, you know, that's what I have going on right now. Great. Where can readers find you online? It's obvious that you love to hear from your readers. I do. I love it. So there's a, you can email me through my website at melissalinhart.com. Of course, I'm on Twitter at Mel Linhart, M-E-L-L-E-N-H-A-R-D-T. I'm on Facebook as Melissa Linhart. Um, 
Yeah, you can find me on Instagram that way as well. So it's pretty easy to find me once you Google me. It should all kind of, you know, pop up. But yeah, so. Great. And we'll have those links to all of those social media outlets plus your books in the show notes for this episode that gets posted with the podcast. So they'll be there forevermore online for people to find. Okay, great. Well, look, it's been great talking. Thank you so much and all the very best with the next, uh, the third installment of the mystery. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I need all the help I can get on that. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Okay, Melissa. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.